This week on the DTD Podcast, we have Lieutenant Colonel Chaveso Chevy Cook. He's a 17-and-a-half-year veteran with the U.S. Army. He attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, worked in air defense artillery and psyops, and just successfully defended his doctoral dissertation. So let's get right into it. Crazy Dutch bastard. What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. And don't call me sure. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. We have an interesting one tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about the military, but mostly we're going to talk about character, personal development, and uh, kind of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. So, Welcome in, Chevy Cook. Chevy, how are you? I'm good, DJ. Thanks for having me on tonight, man. A absolutely. Um, your story is really interesting to me. Uh, you started out kind of rough in life, and you have really kind of forged a path and kind of made your name known out there. Uh, and I want to start with that. Now, I usually don't like to start with kind of downer things, but I think it's going to kind of set the story for everything. I want to talk about your biological parents, and then I really want to focus in on Mama J. Um, yeah. So let, let's talk about your young childhood, going into Mama J, and then kind of how she took you on from there. Yeah, so uh, I'm a child of the 80s. Um, my parents um, met on the disco dance floor in the 70s, actually. Um, they were, you know, they danced. They worked at a local pizza place um got to really know each other got to really like each other and it's a little bit taboo for their relationship uh with regard to some other historical stuff in our family but you know my mom's white uh and and he was black and they just kind of didn't like that so some fr initial friction uh they get together uh but then the disco dance just doesn't you know doesn't play all the way out uh so they they get divorced uh it, my dad decides to take myself and my younger brother uh, at a very young age, take him on by himself. And then he um, he ran into some trouble with the law. And the majority of his sisters and brothers wanted to take just one of us, wanted to take myself or my brother. No one wanted to take us together. But then eventually his oldest sister did decide to take us both. Uh, so we leave Florida come up to South Carolina, had never visited, had never, you know, lived there, anything. And now we're living in, in South Carolina and this aunt uh, has other kids and those kids are teenagers and those kids are um, doing various things in the neighborhood um, that, you know, just aren't probably the best for us youngins to be around. And uh, our next door neighbor uh, at the time we knew her as Miss Sunkissed. And Miss Sunkiss had the mailbox that was our kind of finish line for 
races on bikes or foot races or any, you know, it's just, we went to her mailbox and that was the finish line for Sean and I. And, but we also went to her house for other things. You know, we were the cute little kids, you know, going next door to Miss Sunkiss house to uh, borrow bread or borrow milk or borrow some eggs or, or what have you. Now, Sunkiss didn't have any kids. She had a boyfriend at a time, but um, wasn't married or anything like that. Well, eventually Sunkiss took a real liking to us and um, she just, you know, wanted to bring us around more and more and more. And uh, eventually the situation with my aunt got really untenable. Um, we were, they were doing some things, the kids were, that we were getting involved in that, you know, wasn't the best look uh, back in the eighties. And um, there's some, maybe some nefarious and criminal behavior that were happening too. And Mama J was like, well, Miss Sunkiss at the time, uh, was like, maybe I want to, you know, take these kids out of this situation. So um, lo and behold, this is creeping up on my ninth birthday. And she asked me if I had ever had a, uh, a birthday party. I said I had not. So she said, come on up. We're going to give you a birthday party. And I go up there to have a birthday party. And uh, the lights are all out in the house. And she asked, um, hey, do you know what you're supposed to do when we blow out the candles on this cake? I was like, no, I don't know what to do. And she said, you're supposed to make a wish. So as God is my witness, I I, uh, I wish that I could move in with her. And uh, somebody hurt me uh, because we eventually uh, moved in with her. And then she eventually, Miss Sunkiss became Mama J. Uh, she became our adoptive mother. And uh, that pretty much put me on the path that I've been on uh, since. And uh, Mama J today, my next door neighbor, is is my mom and we could talk about you know some of the roadblocks there stumbles there or you know circling back around with the rest of my family or any of that stuff but yeah my next door neighbor is who i'll call my mama today well here's my question though without mama j coming into your life where are you at today a statistic i i i firmly believe that I grew, I grew up in a neighborhood like, you know, people hear about like Detroit and L.A. and these kind of big cities that uh, things are happening, uh, especially in the 80s. Um, but if you I really do think if you look across American culture, especially in the 80s, if you could be in any kind of suburban or, or uh, city kind of area that uh, has a ghetto or a hood or whatever in it that just isn't the best context the best environment to grow up in and there's things happening that aren't the best for any of our kids and that stuff still happens today but by and large i think it was a little bit worse uh, a couple years ago all of us as we get older we kind of think you know it's, it was a little, always a little bit worse but you know i was in a neighborhood i'll be frank and, and honest like i was in a neighborhood where like we were taught to to not trust police uh, or any authority figures. I knew what I knew. It was a news helicopter flying overhead. I know it was a police helicopter. I was a you know my older cousins helped me identify uh, undercover cops that were driving through the neighborhood. And you know I, th that was kind of the stuff that was going on there. First time I saw a dead body was an overseas on a deployment. It was actually in my yard after a shootout. Uh, I remember distinctly Mama Jay telling us to duck in the house. 
because uh, there was a path from one street to another street. It went through our yard and uh, these guys were shooting at each other and uh, it didn't work out for one of them. Um, so I, I firmly believe if if Mama J didn't intervene, if um, if I would just kind of stayed with what was going on, the kind of normal trend in that neighborhood, um, I'd either be in jail um, or I'd, you know, not be around living or um, I definitely probably wouldn't be serving my country and, and have a great family of my own and have taken care of all these opportunities. I, I firmly believe that she is, she's an angel. She's uh, partly why I'm religious, man. I, I believe she's on borrowed time. I, I, she clipped her wings to come down here and do stuff like this for us. Well, I think it's interesting with you having a background in psychology and carrying it as far as you have in psychology, even in even in your military actions. I, I think it's funny to look at maybe funny is not the word to look to say, but I, I find it interesting that if she doesn't intervene, you're the same guy. We can agree on that, right? Biologically, you're the same. You're yeah, sure. everything. If she doesn't intervene, you're not a lieutenant colonel in the military. You don't do everything you've done, but you're the same person. So what is it about Mama J that changed the inside of you? Because as we know, you and I have talked before this, trouble still kind of lurked around you every once in a while, but it wasn't it wasn't an affront like it was in the beginning to you. So what was it about Mama J that changed almost the inner you? Yeah, so and we can get into this real deep, you know, as far as like some of the, the theory behind uh, individual and context with regard to relational developmental systems and how people uh, develop over time. Uh, just finishing my doctorate in uh, human development, we can we can really get into the weeds. Um, but well, I would like to definitely touch on nature versus nurture and all that kind of. Oh, stuff. Yeah, so, oh yeah, we can we can surely beat that up. But I, this is what I think about Mama J. Mama J created an environment within an environment. Okay. So if you go to my house right now, and I don't want to put her address out there because I don't think that's the right thing to do. But if you were to go, she lives in the same context. She lives in that same neighborhood. We grew up in that same neighborhood. Right. And if you go to my house, there are bars on our windows. There are five locks on my front door. There are three on the back. My mom still puts the, the bar under the door to wedge it from being kicked in from just stuff that happened in our youth, right? And as much as that seems like it would be a prison, it was not, She, it was a, it was this incubator. It was this safe haven. It kept everything out as opposed to keeping us in. And I think what makes her special is she got us away from all of that. She did little things. My mom is not college educated. She's not some lawyer or something out here. My mama, you know, has worked a regular nine to five, uh, putting chips on data boards for computers since since the eighties. Okay, and in between there was also a, a janitor in a hospital, wiping up all all the stuff that you wipe up in the emergency room and stuff at night. Right? She knew that we needed love, care, affection and a stable environment within that home. And what she did was get us out of that neighborhood as much as possible and limited our interactions in the neighborhood when we were there. So for one, 
I went two hours across uh, across Columbia. I rode the bus five o'clock in the morning to go to a different middle school and high school across town. That was a better high school. She made sure that happened. We played sports um, on, on our on our on our school teams, but we also played like sports across town in the parks and stuff. So she constantly got us out of the neighborhood into different contexts so we could not be caught up in the distractions within my neighborhood. She let me hang out and do all the stuff that kids do, you know, come home when the street lights come on and all that stuff. We rode bikes and ran around in the woods and all that stuff. But she was very specific about who we were hanging out with and who we, who we were being influenced by. And she just pushed and prodded and poked just enough to say, hey, you need to go do something else. Um, and, and she had a rule. We were getting out of the house at 18. We were going to school. It wasn't an option and it had to be free. And, and she made no bones about like, you got to get your life together. You got to get out of here. And the only way you're going to get out of here is through education. And she did not relent. She was relentless. So she took whatever genetic material I had that wasn't even hers. I wear no blood relation. She saw something, some possibility. And then she just fostered an internal environment within our home that was like, hey, go go chase the American dream, go chase success. And she today to this day, she she doesn't even claim that it was her doing. You know, I talked to her at my promotion a couple of weeks ago. You know, we're crying on the phone and stuff because we've got, come a long way. And uh, she still to this day is like, I didn't really do anything. Because she's a humble, wise Southern woman. First time you felt loved? Wow, that's powerful. Um, I think I was. I think I was loved by my birth parents. I, yeah, I have some good young memories of of them for sure. But then there's this all this like brokenness in the in the middle for for a couple years, and then. Um, then Mama J obviously kind of wraps that, comes back around, wraps that back together um, and made, made me feel whole first, I think. Anyone who knows, comes to know Mama J, she's a tough nut to crack. She's like tough love up front and then a softy on the back end. And uh, it took me a while to figure out what that was because I didn't really have that for my birth parents growing when I was really little. And then I had nothing for a while. Um, I think she made me feel whole at first. And then I, I figured out what that kind of love was. And then the next person I fell in love with was actually my wife in high school that we've been together since. So, <laughs> Well, on that when you when you talk about that they made you feel whole again you talked about your parents and you said that you believe that they loved you uh in the beginning uh or, sure. or 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 early on um but when you talk about that in that same note when i go through all the stuff that you sent me and all the research i've done on you you don't really talk to them yeah that's that's one of my uh, greatest failures today i really do think um so my dad was kind of, so he went to prison, he got back out. He looked us up through his sister. Um, and he, he ended up coming to find us. Um, 
and we began, you know, kind of every now and then, like spending a summer down there, or he would come up to South Carolina for Christmas, but he never tried to, you know, take us back under his wing or anything. And uh, as any, you know, young man would, there was a, there was a real rough patch for us where, you know, Mama J, here's Mama J, woman, next door neighbor, you know, not having a husband or anything in the house. And I'm trying to figure out how to be a man. She's trying to help me. So I resented him a lot for that uh, as a teenager, for sure. And uh, I was in Florida two weeks ago on vacation, went to Tampa, saw him all week. So we don't talk much, um, but there's there's love there. There's a connection there. And, you know, I wouldn't visit Tampa, Florida and like avoid seeing him for sure. But, you know, we're not, you know, we're not the closest of close just because, you know, I end up you know, knowing him from a distance. And there were some disappointments there and things that he missed out on, things I wish he was there. And he's been very apologetic over, over my lifetime. And I've uh, pretty much told him he doesn't need to apologize to me. He just, if he can be a good granddad, that's all he needs to do. Now with my birth mother, I didn't find her again or, or they didn't find me actually until I was about 29 years old. Uh, I, and we went from like no talking at all, three or four years old, quarter century, then I'm found again. Um, and we find each other through MySpace of all things back then. Hmm. Someone was like, you know, hey, you know, this guy's got a unique name. Uh, let's just look him up. And and I, and I was found. And so we, you know, we've been around each other for about a decade now, a little bit over a decade. She spent Thanksgiving here in my house a year ago. Um, so again, we've reestablished relationships. Uh, she knows her grandchildren. Um, but it's just not one of those. Um, I mean, there's kind of a 25 year gap that uh, is hard to account for. And I know as I get older now, um, that that's probably one of my biggest fears is it's, it's at this point, it's kind of not on them to kind of do the work to make the relationship work this way. It's probably more on me to go uh, that way with it. Um, but, you know, I have my own kids and have my own wife. And those have become big priorities for me. Uh, and it's hard to kind of make amends for those 25 years on my end when I'm trying to invest in uh, the new generation that's coming up in my own household, if that makes sense. It does, but it kind of makes a kind of a strange paradox um, with with that, because I think in all of us and I have three daughters, I think that that we always don't teach our kids what we need to do. Does that make sense? We tell them, love your family, hang out with them. And we may argue with family or not talk to family or and we don't provide the best example for it. So how do we overcome something like that? Because especially with you, I mean, if anybody has a reason not to talk, it's a 25 year absence. There's got to be a lot of heartburn there. There's got to be a lot of, of unanswered questions there. And yeah. I, I would think that you have to be at a point where you don't even really want to know the answers anymore. Or do you? In a, in a lot of ways, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, and then there's a, you know, here's the interesting piece. Like, where does that leave Mama J, right? Like if, 
if I try to re like re-engage and make myself closer to my birth mother or make myself closer to my birth father, well, there was one person that surely was there, rain, sleet, snow, hail, you know, the the bad, the good, all of it. And she was not even, you know, any type of relation to us, you know, just a next door neighbor. So there's always been this piece with me that's like, well, if I try to get closer to them, like, what does that mean for my relationship with Mama J? Is that some way disrespecting her? Is it some way like not valuing her contribution to who I am? Is it, you know, there's all those kind of questions to deal with. So um, what I've tried to do over time is be as close to them as, as it makes me comfortable and be close enough to know my history and know my past well beyond them. Cause that's, I think that's important for every family, but also be as inviting as I could for them to have uh, a, an invested and fruitful relationship with their grandkids, because I don't want the gap that I had in my life to then create a gap in their lives. So my kid, my oldest kid is, is creeping up on 12 and she knows a lot of this history because she's co finally come to age where we can talk about this stuff. But, you know, she doesn't know all of the pain and the struggle and stuff. And I don't, you know, you don't want to put that on your kids, right? So what she does know is that, you know, Nana's an artist. You know, that's what she calls um, my mom, my birth mother. Nana's an artist and can paint anything. and She's a sweet and kind lady who means well. What she does know about uh, her grandpa, Steve, who's uh, my birth father, is that he is creative and an innovator and and corny uh, and likes to be around when he can. Um, and I don't want to take that from them, right? So that's how I, I think that's how I interact with them to make sure they have that opportunity uh, with the youngins. So let's talk a little bit about the nature versus nurture uh, yeah. of growing up in that environment. Now, let's say of all your closest friends, your brother that grew up with you, what what happened to the majority of them? Because we're going to get into you kind of going off to prep school and 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 getting accepted into West Point because that's a pretty interesting story. But what happens to all the people around you? Oh, man, today. Uh there are uh, there there's some people in the neighborhood um that aren't alive anymore there's some people that uh didn't graduate high school there's some people that went off to college didn't finish uh there's some people who tried to play basketball on sports like that um and it went nowhere there's some people back then that are um you know uh, doing time in prison um because that was the, just the nature of the the environment that i grew up in uh, very, I mean, there's never a time because my mom still lives in that neighborhood. There's never a time I go back and literally see any of the same people that I play basketball with in the street because um, they just don't exist in my neighborhood anymore. Well, let me ask uh, you, growing up real quick, um, and it kind of goes into this, with you having a, a mixed background, did yeah. you have trouble in that neighborhood? Or were you ever looked at differently or did you ever have to prove yourself or anything like that? Uh, 
I, I think a lot of it was around the the normal stuff that was said back then. Like I got called a zebra and an Oreo and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but because, you know, I could play a little bit of basketball and, you know, I could run a little bit faster than some and I could, you know, catch a football. Um, you know, me and my brother and I were, were interested, were, were, um, we were accepted in a way. Um, we said a lot of stuff back in the eighties that should not have been said against each other. And it, it was, a, I think a different environment, right? We could, we could joke with each other and we ribbed each other. And today, some of the ribbing that we did probably would be called bullying, but all in all, when I started to go to different schools, I stopped spending so much time with the people in my neighborhood. Um, so, you know, when I was going across town to a different school and I was a new kid, you know, you got to get through the new kid stuff. But eventually, you know, I, I was I was very accepted and in high school. You know, I, I did OK. And I cared about my high school a lot. And I cared about my high school experience because Mama Jay beat it in my head that I would and that I had to do well so I could get out of there. So by high school, everything was um, kind of unnormal. Um, and it helped that I also, you know, met this young girl there uh, that would eventually be my wife. When is it in high school that you're actually chosen uh, and accepted to go into West Point? Because I, it's not your senior year. It's your junior year, right? So you do you apply when you're a junior and that still is today because uh, it's like a very early application process. And if you are accepted, you know, in that first semester, most likely of your senior year because most most academies you know when you look across air force and all of them they're trying to poach that talent early before they're going to these you know other awesome schools so i was accepted to west point december of my senior year in high school but then i uh did not go directly and i went to prep school instead uh, because while i worked hard and um and thought I was ready. When the acceptance letter actually came, I was pretty intimidated uh, by it. Um, no one at my high school had gone before, so I didn't have somebody to reach out to and say, like, what is this process like? There's nobody in my family that had um, been in the military, so there was no one I could reach out and say, like, what is it like be being in the Army? I was, you know, just in um, JROTC, you know, and you know, wearing a pickle green suit and all that good stuff. Um, so I was a little intimidated, so I, I ended up not going straight in and, uh, I went to the prep school first, but I found out pretty early, but I had been tracking West Point since I was a freshman in high school for sure. So it's interesting that you get accepted, but you go to this prep school because it's supposed to get you ready for West Point. It's supposed to get kind of those butterflies out of your stomach, mm -hmm. but then you go to West Point in your first year. You have a 1.9 grade point average. Yeah, man. Got a solid, hard. So what happened? I, I got punched in the face by West Point academics, man. Like I I had a professor, um, a civilian professor. There's a lot of uh, academy uh, teachers that are that are military. I had a civilian. And this guy was, I mean, he was very specific about how the class would be run and how you would be prepared. And I just wasn't ready for it. 
Um, and I got a D in that class. Only D I've ever gotten my entire life. Got my first semester at West Point. Uh, and it brought my GPA down to a one nine. Uh, and it was a shocking slap in the face. Uh, humbling? It, it, say again. Was it humbling or was it a shock? Oh, no, it was it was it was a bit of both. OK, for sure. Um, anybody that's at West Point is, you know, they're telling you stuff like, you know, you're the best of the best and all that and you were select hand selected and all that good stuff so you feel pretty confident um and i i think you know from my background and my past i thought you know i can't i came a long way uh, and i thought i was you know gonna be okay and good to go um but then you know i get that humble pie of well you're not good to go yet you need to buckle down and at the time i wasn't like asking for extra help from my teachers or leaning on peers or anything like that because you know mama jay had taught me how to kind of take care of myself and i really needed to humble myself to ask for help and i did and i did better afterward but it was also shocking because i mean i had never got a d before i never got a c before i attended the academy I just didn't know what, you know, what that feeling was like. And then you're around so many awesome people who are doing awesome things and all these cadets are doing well around me. And here I'm getting, you know, D's and C's at times uh, there in that first semester. And it was, man, it was a shock to the system for sure. But then it told me that I needed to get my stuff together. And I tried to after that. What did Mama J say? <laughs> Mama Jay was like, you better not fail out of that school. <laughs> Cause she knew it, you know, it was such a, it was a big deal uh, for our family. And it was a, I mean, at the time I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's, you know, the price of, you know, West Point education today is much bigger, but at the time this was like a quarter, quarter million dollar education yeah. that I was getting for free. And it was, you know, the best school I had got into and she was just like hey don't mess it up but she also like she has always done believed in me whenever i met messed up whenever i had scrapes whenever i really jacked life up she was always there give me that kind of look that all southern women have that they don't have to say anything but they kind of kind of just give you that look and you kind of know okay it's time for me to straighten up and fly right um but she always believed in me she always you know, she just said, hey, take a step back, get your stuff together. You better ask for some help up there. Um, and I did. And everything worked out. So there's one more time that you, I would say, that stood out that you got in trouble at West Point. Uh, you were a boxer yeah. there. Mm -hmm. uh, got in a little bit of trouble with a drinking um, incident. Yeah. So you've been humbled by the grades. Now they tell you you're not going to do, because the way I look at it is like the military. You're not going to do what you want to do. You're going to do what we want you to do. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. You're going to do what they're paying for your school. You're going to do exactly what they tell you to do. Yeah. So you get in trouble with this. You get kicked off the boxing team for a little while. Yeah. Are you worried at any point? Like, shit. Uh I cannot mess this up and in in something not necessarily a gray, but in something where I'm in trouble, do you ever start going, Oh shit. In that particular instance, that was just, you know, 
silly, young. Absolutely. You know, get, being there's so many the, the the academy can be be such a pressure cooker. So when you do travel, when you do get away, if it be it on a team or or off of a team, if you're just just getting away from the academy, you kind of want to let loose. And it's one of those times when I let loose a little bit too much and uh, embarrass myself, embarrass my team in the process. Um, and again, was really, it was one of those times where I remember this like it was yesterday. Coach was extremely disappointed in me. He wasn't angry. He didn't want to like rip my head off, which I thought was going to happen. He was just like, let this be a lesson for you when you go lead troops. Like, you know, there's going to be a time when they're going to really disappoint you. And you got to, you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do to either rebuild that troop, that soldier, that situation, or, you know, kick them to the curb. And uh, he was like, your penance is you're off the team. And I was like, Roger that. And then after some time, after a long time, you know, uh, they let me come back around. Uh, and I, it was it was a huge lesson for me about redemption and about mistakes and about, you know, seeing beyond, you know, the error uh, that was taught to me by my coaches at that moment. Like really like looking and saying like, I. I assume he was looking at me and saying, this is a good kid. He just did something stupid. His grades are in order. He's a leader within the Corps of Cadets at this time. You know, this is just uh, an uncharacteristic incident. And he really let me know in no uncertain terms that I will come across a soldier like that when I was out in the force. And I mean, anybody who has served has come across I'm sure you came across multiple ones yeah especially growing up in the 82nd yeah you you just it was a good lesson for me to learn on my own that i could be redeemed and i wasn't just a piece of trash to be touched uh, uh flicked to the curb just because i made a big mistake um it was a good lesson to learn there as opposed to learning that lesson as the lieutenant or a captain even you know a problem that we have today a lot is short-sighted leaders. And you just talked about that. We look at knee-jerk reactions, and it happens everywhere. It happens in the military, happens in law enforcement, happens in medical. Yeah. All of those yeah. pressure cooker jobs, we get knee-jerk reactions. Yeah. And we seem to anymore be going further and further down that road where the knee-jerk reactions are getting bigger the short-sightedness is growing stronger. Is there a way that we pull away from that and go back to because everyone can't get kicked off the boxing team? And sometimes these higher commands, it's too late to learn it. So how do we change that from the bottom up or from the middle up? Or how do we do that when we're with leaders that have, one, never been humbled like that, never been taught like that, and quite frankly, some that don't ever want to learn to be like that? That's very interesting. I'm going to take it from being a subordinate to the, you know, okay. thinking about higher leaders. So I, this is a piece of advice I've shared before that I was taught 
that was really good for me to learn at a, at a much younger officer uh, age. I think subordinates got to give leaders who don't have this stuff all together some grace. So I'm going to talk from an Army perspective specifically. Um, you know, the first, your battalion commander, lieutenant colonel, you know, that battalion commander, the first time they command a battalion is as a lieutenant colonel. Like, they don't get a, a, a you don't get multiple runs at battalion command, even though you might be at 17, 18, 19 years of service, right? Same thing with a brigade commander at the 06 level. First time they're commanding a brigade, when they're in the 06. Division commander, how many divisions do you command? One, right? Two-star general, the first time they're commanding is at that two-star level. Global uh, geographic command, command four-star, CENTCOM, the PACOMs, all that stuff. There are four stars. They got 30-something years of service. They do not get the like command multiple GCCs. They do that one time. It's their first time. So I remind people to give these commanders, give these leaders grace because it's their first time doing it, no matter how many years of service they, they have. So as they're trying to figure it out, it's our job and our responsibility to, to I think, take care of ourselves, but then help them figure out that first time job that they're doing, battalion command, brigade command, or beyond. Now, from the leader perspective, the ones who, to, to get after what you're talking about, haven't been humbled or, you know, are, are so draconian or forget their mistakes, right? They were taken care of, but now that they're in the seat, it's like, you know, they're, they're crushing, they're crushing Joe and Josephine down there on the line. And, and to interrupt you just real quick, I yeah. think that's the one right there that you're talking about that bites us in the ass the most. I think it's those guys that have forgot their past or forgot their misgivings or whatever you want to call it. And when they take over, they think I got to set an example. This is how it'll go. Yeah, that's, a, that's a tough one. That's a real tough one. Um, because it takes a lot of self-awareness to even remember your past mistakes or to remember that this is your first time doing it. I think there's a couple different ways we approach that. Um, there are systems being put in place, especially in the Army. Like I'm, I came through a system to get selected for battalion command, the battalion commander's assessment program that is new, uh, that your your uh, peers and your subordinates provide feedback and it can keep you from battalion command today that didn't i mean this is brand new as, as of you know last year or so so i think the army has taken care of some systems that put them into place that make you reflective as a leader or you won't get the chance so that's a good i think the second thing there is i think it's really incumbent upon just talking from the officer side really good NCOs, really good first sergeants, really good sergeant majors, really good platoon sergeants, all those in-betweens too, to um, when they see their leader kind of being a little bit maybe harsh, maybe a little bit too firm, maybe um, forgetting who they used to be because, you know, the army is small. So sometimes we work with NCOs that we've worked with before. I think it takes a really strong uh, secondhand man or woman to come up to that leader and say, Hey, sir. Hey, ma'am. Like, don't you remember being a Lieutenant? Don't you, you don't you remember being a youngin? Hey, let's sit down and talk about, I don't even know about your mistakes. Can you, can we talk about some of the things that you might've struggled with? And let's, uh, 
let's think about that the next time we're doing some disciplinary action or, you know, let's, let's bring that up and maybe point that perspective out next time we're thinking about that lieutenant who's made a mistake. I think it takes some leaders around the level of the leader to really take care of them too, not just from a subordinate level. And then the last thing is we got to stop hero worshiping, man. Like we got, we got to, and this might be a controversial thing for, for some folks out there. We got to stop thinking that you have to have a position to be successful. Like you can be a good leader and not be a commander, right? You can, you can be a good officer and be a staff officer and just do good work. I think positions like these command positions over time, you feel like it's got to be zero defect. You feel like, well, I can't show any vulnerability. I can't show where my failures were, or I got to come down on these folks because it's going to hurt my stats. I think we got to figure out a way to stop hero worshiping positions so much and, and give people opportunities to grow in other ways. But isn't that kind of counterintuitive to what the military is? Isn't the point of the military to learn leadership and to gain those leadership positions in order to teach the younger generation to come up into those positions? So isn't that kind of counterintuitive to when you say don't hero worship? I, I get that point, but isn't that kind of the whole thing is to get to those ranks and to get to those positions? Well, I think in the in the you know just speaking from an army perspective again, I'm I'm speaking my own opinions. Right. You know, I'm not speaking for the army. Um, you know, I think the, the one of the purposes of our military is to defend the nation, right? In the grand scheme of things. So yeah, be, beneath defending the nation is a subset of control and hierarchy that allows us to maneuver folks so we can defend our our nation, which requires leadership, because leadership then provides, you know, purpose, key tasks, in-state, inspiration, motivation for folks to go do the nation's bidding. But at the same time, you know, if we're going to promulgate war or we're going to defend our shores, I think it can't be all about the positions. It can be about leadership. Leadership isn't just a positional thing. I think leadership is a 360 thing. There's been, for example, when I was last in command as a company commander, I got rid of the terminology or I poo always poo-pooed on the terminology junior enlisted. It was, it, to me, it was like a curse word in my, my for, formation. I didn't like to hear junior enlisted. I like to call them all junior leaders because the minute you show up from AIT, or that in whatever initial training you do, there's in you in you're in a formation. Somebody's coming behind you, so let's treat them like leaders from day one. Uh, uh, from an army perspective as well, you can do lateral transfers at E4 uh, from specialist to corporal. And I did my darndest to make every specialist a corporal because I just wanted more NCOs in my formation. I wanted to reward people who were stepping up even if they didn't have the position of a leader, right? So leadership, I think, is really beyond something positional. And if you look at some different leadership theories out there, it'll talk about positional leadership versus referent leadership versus transformational leadership. And I don't think you have to have a position for that. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons I 
figure that stuff out in my organizations because when I showed up, I handed out three by five cards to random people who was walking past me that I didn't know in the hallway, didn't care what rank they were. And I told them on this card, I want you to write down every person that's a leader in this organization, regardless of position. I don't care what rank they are, what position they are. If you believe you would follow them into a burning building or go into war with them, or if they ask you to do something you want to crush in their judgment, I want you to write their name down on here. As many as you want, give back to me. And then I collected those stats. And I'll tell you, there were some people who were in formal leadership positions on those lists. And there were some people who weren't. The people who weren't, I made sure I leveraged. That's that's what I think partly of what leadership is. Do you think that that could cause a problem to, uh, to be more of a popularity contest? Did you ever see that you, you would see people's names on there? You would see people that were mentioned, that it was more of a, hey, that's a good guy. I hang out with him. I do things like that. Or did you did you really see the majority of the time true leaders come from that? I saw true leaders. I saw true leaders. I will. There was a young E5 in uh, in the headquarters office. This time, you know, I know the plural of anecdote is not fact. But I got two anecdotes I have to share with you. Okay. E5 front office admin clerk. Um, single mom. Um, a phenomenal office clerk a phenomenal person to work in the headquarters, knocking out everything, paperwork always tight, getting stuff from higher headquarters, no issues. Um, but always never forgot she was an E5. Like, looked like an NCO, walked like an NCO, talked like an NCO, squared people away regardless because, I mean, she didn't have a formalized position, okay? That was one of the people whose name was on that list. And when I started asking about this person, they were like, oh, yeah, Sergeant so-and-so, real squared away, real squared away. I was like, what is she doing up in the headquarters then? Long story short, that person today is a lieutenant who's accepted to uh, an Army nursing program um, that is going to uh, medical school to be an Army nurse, going to be a, a captain when she finishes. So the, the leadership was there, and we put her in positions for her to affect the army in a different way. She was just an admin clerk, but she, from the one of those lists, made it, you know, people made it known that she was a leader and we fostered her abilities. We fostered her creativity. We fostered her leadership capability in other ways. She, you know, went off to green to gold, went to college, been a Lieutenant for a couple of years. Now she has this wonderful opportunity. There was another one, young E4 everyone listened to this guy and i thought he was just one of those guys you're talking about like just a good dude just a good dude in the barracks but we had a couple informal kind of settings with him with uh with a couple different leaders and i would always invite this young specialist in and he had some vision and i would always ask him i'm like hey man have you ever thought about you know, what, what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to be an officer? Are you going to get out? He's like, oh, no, I'm not going to stand. Like, this isn't for me. You know, I'm, I want to grow a family and everything. I was like, okay. He was like, yeah, but, you know, I heard you talking about making people corporals. I would love to be a corporal because I want to test the waters on this NCO stuff. He was the first person we made a corporal, and he was getting out. So our sergeant major for the battalion was like, we're not making this guy a 
corporal or NCO, he's going to get out. And I was like, do you know his name? Like, yeah, I know, I know Mr. So-and-so. Like, okay, if you know him as a sergeant major of the battalion and he's a young E4, what does that tell you? Why, what do you know about him? He started talking about all this good stuff he was doing. And I was like, well, that's why I want to make this guy a leader before he gets out. Let's take advantage of his, his potential and let him lead a troop or two. And he did. And that kid crushed it. Everybody respected him. Um, he helped me write the vision statement uh, for the company. And uh, everyone was tearful when that guy was getting out of the Army, to include himself. He had other aspirations. Um, but that kid was a, was a super good kid. And he just needed the opportunity. And, you know, from one of these little informal lists, we got to um, let him take advantage of the opportunity of leadership. With saying that and him getting out and everyone being sad about it, how do you keep guys like him in the military? Because <laughs> they're few and far between now. Uh, it, it's hard to keep the best of the best because they do have aspirations. So I think it's okay if people exit with grace. I think, you know, we need leaders across society. I think it's, you know, I think it, it what, um, it's one of the things that, you know, holds us all together as leadership, uh, especially in America. So I'm, I'm okay with good folk getting out and doing something else, because if they're good, they're still going to be good wherever they go. Absolutely. Now to, to, to get, to drill down to your point about like how, you know, it would be good for us to keep some of those folks in. How do we do that? Um, I think we need to think a little bit more at the at the bigger uh, kind of, you know, beyond myself, bigger scheme of things of really giving these folks opportunities, really doing what's best uh, for them and their families. And sometimes, you know, uh, we have put other priorities in front of all of that and have you know, help people back from schools or what, whatever it may be and have not like kind of let them carve their own path. Sometimes you got to let people, you know, go into a functional area, go do some specialty school or go do something else, even though you don't want them to do that stuff, just to keep them in, just to retain them. Luckily, the army just transitioned over to doing something called um, people first. So we are like really enforcing this idea of putting people first and letting them be the priority truly over some, even sometimes over uh, maybe even a mission requirement, if we can be full and, and cover down on things. So I think that's part of it is really understanding our people, knowing where they are. I will tell you that um, even that, that um, person that's going to that nursing program, there might've been a time when um, she thought she wanted to get out. But then when I asked, you know, when others leaders, I asked, like, what would keep you in a green to gold packet? Some people would say, well, we need really good NCO leadership. And she could have been a star major all day. But then you hear her and you know that she's a single parent and, you know, the potential for income might just happen to be a little bit better on the officer side. And that's also what she wants to do you get her to stay by letting her do that as opposed to trying to make her the next best E7. I mean, this was the NCO that was winning NCO of the year for our higher headquarters. This was the NCO who in my company, we gave out 
a memorial award for uh, a fallen E7 we had. She was the inaugural winner of that award. Best, and it didn't go to the best NCO in the in the organization. It gave, went to the best leader in my in my organization. First person to get it was her. So some people were like, "Hey, let's groom her to be the next star major of the army." You know, first female star major of the army. Can we do that? That's not what she wanted to do, and it and it kept her in because we let her do what she wanted to do, and now she's going to be, you know, really great in the career field that she's chosen. Do you think there's any problem with when you mention people first, uh, and you say that even? And if we get into an area, because I know you're still active and I know you don't want to talk about some of these things. So, but I want to get at this because I think it's on a lot of people's minds. If you look in the past 20 years, we've been at war. um, Sure. All over globally. I mean, you have like 12 deployments yourself, I think. Um, So you, you, you know that we've been at war when you hear people say, we take people over mission sometimes. Does that concern you at all? That's a really tough question to answer. As I think about it a little bit, I think about it from this perspective. If you're in the army, let's take it from a different perspective. Okay. If you're in the air force, you fight planes. Okay. Your means of fighting is a plane. Okay. In the aggregate. Okay. If you're in the Navy, you fight ships. If you're in our in our armed forces and in the army, you fight with people. People are the implementation tool. Yeah, army folks got tanks and howitzers and and guns and stuff. But in the grand scheme of things, the army is a is a people force. If you are going to put men and women on target, put men and women in harm's way. They have to be first to even accomplish the mission, right? Let's think of, let's unpack this from a lot of different ways. Okay. When you think about um, instances of post-traumatic stress, for example, that's been situations where we put mission and mission and mission and mission and mission first, pause for the person, and then mission and mission and mission and mission, and then pause enough for the person, especially on the back end. I would tell you that things like trust, mutual trust and respect between folks uh, who are going in harm's way, doesn't just end when you're, you know, executing on the target. It continues when you get back off and are sitting beside each other on a dusty, stormy bunk, and you gotta, you know, unpack what y'all just went through that trust continues that people peace continues so i would say you know even if you say people first mission always they they um or people always and mission always you can they always got to be close closely knit but man the people are doing the do and i will say uh, over time and i haven't gotten it all right for for sure but I've done my utmost level best to be as connected to people uh, when I serve with them, regardless of the conditions, garrison overseas or whatever, to really get to know who them, who they are and practice tailor-made leadership for what they need right now, that person, this time, this context, 
given these circumstances, given these needs, given these mission parameters, you know, practicing something called the specificity principle, which is grounded in theory, um, actually from psychology is by a guy named Bornstein. Um, so I think that you can never, ever, ever, especially from an army perspective, because we're fighting people, we're, we're using people as a, as an implementation tool. Um, I think you can never deprioritize humans. So let me come at the question at a different angle then. Okay. Do you feel that there can be with that a bastardization of that philosophy? Because of course people first, you have, you're exactly right. Post-traumatic stress. And we're not just talking in the military. We're talking in law enforcement. We're talking oh, yeah. um, all of those different things, fire, uh, anyone that's a first responder. We, we can take yes. it at that text. Absolutely. I think the question that we come at from another angle, though, is can we get to a point, because we see it now, can we get to a point where we're so concerned with each individual thought that we lose focus on that mission? And you spoke about specificity. So I wonder, though, is there a point that we can get to where maybe not by our own means or not because of our own falters, but where we lose sight of that mission. I think if we have good leaders, good leaders can balance okay. investing in individuals and not losing sight of the mission. I think the great leaders can always be practice discernment enough where they can make good calls that will still get the mission done and take care of their folks. I think where the bastardization might happen or where the slips happen, where they put you know people so far forward that they're not caring so much about the mission, the mission fails, isn't in essence, simply bad leadership or lazy leadership or convenient leadership or likership. Cause I know a lot of times people, you know, like to call it likership. I think if you're, if you're a, a damn good leader or a great leader, you can balance the two. You can think about your people and put them in the context of whatever the mission may be still get the mission done and still take care of your people. I think the greatest leaders um, have have done so, which is why we have great leaders still in the army because they were able to, you know, uh, bring people up in the ranks. We, we, the army has never hurt for leadership. The military Absolutely. in general, I don't think has ever hurt for leadership. We always have great leaders that, that get us through the next hump, whatever that hump may be. And I think it's because they have figured out the, the the way to get the job done, get the mission accomplished, but still take care of the folks um, that are that are supporting them, so they can grow up and do that same thing, right? Be great leaders, take care of the next generation. Let's look at it from a psychology point of view. Okay. Percentages. Percentage. We'll we'll use zero to a hundred. Percentage of great leaders, good leaders should not be leaders. 
I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can, I, I don't know if I can answer that. I don't know if, if I could know. Um, well, let's use your personal out. experience. Let's use your career from, uh, from West Point all the way up until now of all the leaders you've had, we'll use zero to a hundred again. Great. Good. <laughs> Probably should have chosen something else. And I know you've had all three. Everybody has. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's been an even split between the three. Um, I've had some, I've had some of each. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, the good ones have balanced what the not so great and the ones who probably be doing something else uh, were doing. I think the bad ones also showed me how great the good ones were, right? You, I think you need the context, right? Like when I think of uh, Ashley and I say this all the time, when we think of what our marriage is and what love is, you know, the one of the reasons we're together for so long is because we um, help each other feel the entire spectrum of what love is, right? feel the entire spectrum of what emotion and life is. You know, there's sometimes I, you know, we do our best and we're in, in such a good place. Then there's sometimes we just don't like each other. You know, sometimes we piss each other off. But in the aggregate, it shows us, it gives us expanse. It, it helps us understand each other and extend, you know, understand this whole human existence thing. I think the same can be said about uh, leaders in a lot of way, whether they're good, bad, or damn different. The, you know, you want to experience it all. You know, yeah, this might sound counterfactual, but I don't think anyone wants to grow up in uh, any service not ever seeing a bad leader. Because then what do you, you just don't know what it looks like. You don't know what its effects can be. You're just guesstimating at what a bad leader or a bad culture or a bad climate might not, might look like. So bad leaders show us context, show us what wrong looks like. And there's stuff you can tuck away in your rucksack or in your pockets and carry with you uh, that they did. There is um, there's one particular leader uh, that wasn't the best for me, but there were even with that person, they still had kind of little little jewels that they gave me that I can still refer to. Um, and in the other context, too, there are great leaders, there are good leaders out there that have little kind of, you know, not so great things about them um, that we may overlook. But I think you need to have a good spectrum of all. And I think I've had a balance of, of each for sure. In saying that, and, and I think I know where you were headed with that, where the, the leader wasn't necessarily your cup of tea, I guess you could say. Uh, in all the stuff that you sent me in 2011, um, I think, I, I don't know if that's the right year, but you had trouble with um, uh, a commander and a team leadership position. Mm -hmm. um, first off, would you consider that, because I've read everything behind it, would you consider that a bad leader? Well, uh, I I think both of us were bad leaders. That's, that's okay. in hindsight, as okay. I've looked at it. At the time, I thought I was, you know, a hot shot and all that stuff. And I just thought 
that gentleman, my commander, was a bad leader. Okay. I come to find out many, many moons later after some reflection, after other good leaders, after other good peers helped me unpack that situation, that I was also too a bad leader at the time. Because if I was so good, why wasn't I actually leading up? Why wasn't I, you know, helping this quote unquote bad leader um, by being a good, a good dude, um, by being what I needed to be at the time for him, by doing all the extra stuff that, you know, uh, you should do, like, you know, trying to understand his perspective or see his perspective or any of that stuff. I just didn't do that. So I think both of us at the time uh, were, were bad, especially for each other, for sure. Um, is that what you take yeah. away from it? Or is there something uh, else I that take, you learned from that situation? Oh, I, I, I for sure learned that I should, um, I read this great book after that, um, John Maxwell's 360 degree leadership, um, or 360 degree leader. And, uh, it talked about leading up and, that situation as a team leader for me thinking about that company commander i'm like oh my goodness if i had this leading up stuff this the couple chapters that john maxwell had had wrote back then i'd have been in such a better space and not only would i may have helped that company commander i would have helped potentially our organization because i just didn't i was so worried about my team that's a that's that's a surefire a uh, thing to think about uh, that differentiates a, a good leader from a bad leader. When you're thinking like my guys, my team, uh, you've you've lost. And that's how I was thinking as a youngin. Um, uh, and at the time, I could have been so much better. And, uh, you know, that's a major takeaway from that situation for me is that I could have led up better. I could have been a better, better leader myself. That was his team, our team, and not so much my team. Uh, so that was a big takeaway for me back then. It's interesting that you say that you were kind of cocky and kind of thought you were the man back then, and, and that's the trouble that you had with this. But in talking to you, you think that that's one of your greatest faults. Do you still struggle with it? It is... Um, Man, it is my cancer. Um, something I've, uh, you know, fought my whole life is this idea of, um, you know, just being, just being, trying to be humble, um, but having, you know, moments of success um, that you, you know, it's, you know, when everybody's kind of throwing the accolades on you and you feel really good about what you're doing, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, um, you know, keep, keep that kind of feeling in the back. Like, like I've made it and I, I have done well, it's hard to, um, keep that thing at bay. And I mean, I'm just going to be pretty frank about it. You know, you, when you come from the background that I came from and you have those trials and tribulations, and you come from uh, the culture that I came from in the 80s too, you had to stand up for yourself. You had to be cocky on the street or um, you weren't respected. That's just the context I grew up in. And it's hard to grow up in a 
in that type of context and and lose some of that um so it it always is kind of creeping uh on the back of my neck it's like um a thing that i always have to keep in check um and and i've been blessed over time right like you know i've i've had some some good wins over the years and and um and i'm glad to be where i am i'm i'm super proud of my family and where we are and where we come from um but i gotta i gotta watch it at all times um and that's just me trying to be as self-aware as possible greatest fault um yeah it's 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 probably that it's probably that always trying to balance balance it all out and making sure uh i i do my best to give credit where credit's due try to um, make sure people understand how much I care about them and how much they have, you know, poured into me um, and um, doing the level best that I can to, you know, make the organization better and, and, and pushing things forward that are, you know, those, those young leaders putting them in positions where they could, you know, they can grow, they can, they can do things great. They can make the organization better. They can take the credit. Um, yeah. Is there ever a time where that fault or your struggle is a good thing? I think it always is a good thing. Not mine in particular, but the struggle and challenge and failure in general, I think has always helped. I mean, it's why I create, I created a failure resume um, to show that vulnerability, to show I had, again, we've talked about a lot of things tonight, um, show where I've aired, but it's made me, you know, I've learned something from it. It's made me potentially a better leader. It's given me some, something in my rucksack to give somebody else. Um, I think failure is, I think success does nothing more than set you up for failure in a lot of ways today we don't learn a lot i think from success and i've said this before on a different podcast i think you know what success you always saw yourself graduating from that school doing that cool thing getting that job getting the promotion getting the award. you always use you've always seen yourself doing that and when you do attain it you don't kind of sit back and reflect well how did i get this done but man and let you misstep, let you not make it through a course, let you not do a school, let you not be hired. Then you get into the business of trying to figure out how you misstep. So we really, really analyze failure on the, on the back end. I think it teaches you a lot. So I got to be glad for my weaknesses and I have to be glad for my failures and, and uh, those things that are not my strengths yet because they're teaching me so much. I think they're they're keeping me sharp. They should keep us all sharp as we reflect upon them. Do you think you look at it in this perspective because of your psychology background? Or do you think that actually hinders you because you're going to overthink it? <laughs> That's a good one, DJ. Um, I think part of it is, you know, the background that I have that I've been privy to get um, and all the education around it. But I also think it's, you know, from having great people like my wife 
who helped me understand the perspective of what those failures and, and chips on my shoulder and, you know, uh, faults look like in a different context. I've also had great leaders who've kind of helped me reflect and see those things in a, in a new light, in a new shade, in a new perspective after some time. I also think I've had great people like Mama J who believed in me even when I was making the mistakes or when I was not doing the best I could that um, saw something else in me, you know, saw a, a diamond in the rough or, or what have you that, you know, have also passed along that perspective to me, right? My mom, Mama J ain't had an easy life. So she's always been able to look at it from kind of that other lens, not necessarily being optimistic versus pessimistic is, or the glass is half empty or half full as much as, well, the glass is actually full. Even if it's half water, it's got half air in it. So it's actually full. You know, just having a different kind of look and view on it that's been kind of imbued upon me by the people in my life. There's two things about you and everything I've read in the research, all that kind of stuff. There's two dichotomies of you, and I want to talk about those, and then I want to take the conversation in a different direction. The first yeah. off is you're a leader. You've shown that in the military, in the military academy. But there's been points along the way where you have trouble with leadership, where you don't necessarily still trust that leadership, or uh, you may have a better way. And it's always interesting to me to see that you're on the battalion command level now. And when you have those things in the past, how do you look at people that may look at you in the same way? That's the first question. Help me unpack that a little bit. Okay. You're in that. So you've always been a leader. You've always strived to be a leader. You went to the military academy, all those different kinds of things. But along the way, and we can say probably at each step of the way, uh, you've had trouble with some kind of leader or a command or a directive or something like that, right? Uh, it doesn't happen frequently. I'm just saying at each step along the way as we go through being a young officer, being a field grade officer, being in the schooling and the different leadership roles that you've been in. Now you're at the battalion command level. There's not a lot of people for you to bump heads with. You're getting up there where there's not a lot of people for you to look differently. You come across you, younger you, as a battalion commander. How do you handle that now? Because you know how you have to handle something, but you know how you did it younger. Did that is that unpacking enough? Yeah, wow. Man, that's you're actually helping me so much think about um what I got to do going forward um, to get ready to try to, you know, try to lead once again. Well, I, I think I'm, I've been fortunate enough that uh, I haven't bumped heads with a, a leader in a while, in a long time. Um, so that gives me some perspective of getting the distance and growing from kind of those initial, you know, failures and, and figuring out different ways to work with the people around me, uh, for sure, up, down, left, and right. I think um, those earlier missteps have really prepared me, I think, for uh, 
dealing with my younger crappier self and trying to understand what that person is. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of my past that I let be dragged forward, even though I had great, a great person like Mama J in my life. There is a lot of things that I dealt with that pulled all the way through, um, you know, West Point and even my early lieutenant years, you know, a reminder that, you know, I didn't find my birth mother again until I was 29. I was a captain in the army that, you know, I hadn't dealt with yet. So I think what I've learned from some of that and how it would deal with the younger version of me if if they happen to be in our formation as I get the chance to lead it would be to see if there's anything else there when I'm talking to that younger leader. Um, I don't want to clone me like I, I cloning is bad in Star Wars. So uh, cloning is bad. Well, I think that's too. debatable, but well, you know, <laughs> that, that can be another podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I'm not interested in building up another version of myself, but I do think the best leaders who dealt with me when I was that younger crappy officer and leader, um, the best leaders tried to figure out what was going on with me and gave me that chance. So learning from that, knowing what I went through, I will do my utmost best to get to know them at their level and then help them get to where they want to be, where they want to be with their service. So here's the second dichotomy, and this is where we change course in this uh, conversation. Okay. We can both agree. You didn't grow up with a mentor. Of course you had mama Jay, but we're going to mm -hmm. say that's a parent. You didn't have yeah. shit for mentors other than I will uh, digress on that and say you had a elementary school teacher that kind of set you down, gave you the five year plan, told you yeah. kind of in a in a friendly way. You better get your shit together because life's going to oh, come yeah. at you fast. Yeah. Um, but not a lot of mentoring. You can agree on that, right? I agree. So <laughs> that's what you've dedicated your life to. Not only the military, but mentoring people so is it because you thought it was so important is it because you're angry that no one mentored you is it what is the reason because that's the second dichotomy that i see here you don't come from any of that but that's what you want your lasting legacy to be um yeah it's well the 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 you know the the mentoring thing um specifically with regard to the nonprofit that i get to run is we you know we I co-founded it with a mentee. Uh, so a lot of, you know, that's one piece of the story is um, this gentleman came to me, we've been connected and we wanted to fix what we thought was an almost unfixable problem. And then we come up with this entity. The other piece there is um, when I was growing up, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of uh, mentorship and that there was a gap. And on the back end now, that I do have good mentors and that I have been able to uh, be a mentor for others, I've seen the richness, the connectiveness, the growth that can happen, not only with that protege, but with uh, myself, because it's a reciprocal relationship, right? Um, that I just wanna be able to attempt to give that gift to as many people as possible 
which is you know why we created this other platform it's one to just be in a formation or an organization where you're doing your best to help the formation as it is in front of you and help make your leaders better make your peers better but then there's another to have this uh, a whole other entity where you can tap into different resources and tap into other leadership and tap into other venues and ventures and you can really 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 connect and then potentially exponentially help so many others so i i i think i have a purpose and i think my purpose statement is um i purpose i'm purpose built to serve others and i think mentoring is the best venue or best way for me to do that for others first off what is the unfixable problem um the so i mentioned it being you know mentorship for so long has been this kind of secondary thing that we got to do we're responsible for teach coach mentoring others right like and it's like squash those three words together like they're the same word like a verbal triplet that person needs some teach coach mentorship but we don't like there's there's you know we don't really assess it we don't teach it to to our leaders we don't there's no block on an evaluation form that says, you know, this person had, you know, 12 mentees over the year, so they're good to go or whatever. Um, so the impossible problem that this, like this challenge that we've been uh, trying to address over the years is how do we make people better mentors? How do we make better mentees? How do we connect them to each other, but also connect them to the resources they may need to just develop to be better uh not only like soldiers and leaders and followers but better global citizens better americans but better global citizens as well how can how can we help imbue people with better uh, empathy uh better understanding of diversity inclusion and equity better and uh, better thoughts about what what character looks like uh in themselves and in others so that's been a, 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 the, the challenge we've been trying to chase down and uh, you can't fix it overnight for sure. Is it a fixable problem now? I think there's always going to be leadership challenges. I think there, there are always going to be uh, young kids that need to be mentored. There will always be, you know, adolescents and post adolescents that need to be mentored. I'll always think that there'll be uh, people my age that need others invested in their lives for them to be better people. So it's not going to be, you know, someday we all wake up and, you know, mentoring will always, will, will finally be a thing that everyone does. So it's not necessarily a completely fixable thing, but like so many other things with leadership, like so many other things that have to do with investment in others. I do think it's a worthy cause. It's a worthy cause um, to try to invest in others, uh, try to develop them and try to give them um, maybe some perspective by uh, being really involved in their lives, for sure. How much success have you had with it so far? With mentoring in general? Yeah. We'll talk about military mentors in a minute, but with mentoring in general, how do you, when you walk away from, I know there's no, 
let's use a report card. What do you give yourself? Oh, I, I don't, I don't know, man. Um, that that's a tough question. I like to ask tough questions. If you can't tell, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I can see DJ. Um, I haven't always gotten it right, you know. Um, I'm I'm hoping I'm I'm a I'm a B plus or better. Um, I do have. You know, I get great notes from folks. I had a I had a uh, a guy call me today at, at, at six p.m. my time, um, just as I was sitting down after dinner, and he sounded really uh, fraught. You know, with with panic and. You know, he was thinking about you know he's got this selection coming up in about twenty days, and you know he's got all these people around him telling him he shouldn't do it, and it's bad for his career, and you know, think about what you're doing. You're throwing all these opportunities. Like he was really in a bad spot. And I got a chance to talk to him for about nine or 11 minutes or so. It was really short. And we unpacked some things together and he felt really good at the end of the conversation. And we had established a relationship a long time ago so he could do that. So in moments like that, like I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm batting pretty good. I could tell you stories about folks that I connected with when they were teenagers that they're now in their mid thirties, um, that I've seen go to prep school, go to West Point, graduate, go come in the army, go off to combat, come back, get in a selective degree program. And, you know, now they're field grade officers. Um, and I feel really good about those relationships. Um, but since it's reciprocal, you know, a lot of that is on them. A lot of that that is on them and their their own gumption, their own push, their own fire. Um, so hopefully, uh, I've been a good mentor for others as much as I've had now in my kind of older years. Good, uh, good mentorship for myself from others. When you say it's like gumption and it's back on them, it reminds me of when you were talking about that it's more on you now for your parents. Yeah. Same yeah. kind of, same kind of idea. I, I, a little bit, a little bit, because again, you know, the stuff with my parents there, well, my birth parents there, right. I mean, they're my blood, right. Um, little different in that, you know, with these mentees and mentoring relationships, usually there's no blood relation there. Right. Um, so I think I guess I think what I does, mean by yeah. that, I guess what I mean by that is um, kind of the same idea where you're going to have to work at it along with them. They're going to have to work at it, too, for this relationship to work. It's a very symbiotic relationship, and it takes both working together to actually make it work. And so when you say that, it, it sounds like where you're where you're kind of looking back now as an older an, an older man and saying, Wow, at one point I thought it was just them, but I'm seeing it's it's uh it's both. Oh yes, for sure. Um I can see that. Very symbiotic and it's got to be you know a lot of uh reciprocal work to be done, for sure. Um so I'm still I'm still learning, which is great. At a B plus, what can you do better? Mm. <laughs> um I could um, I could for sure uh, 
reach out, check on them a whole lot more. Um, I just started a very, uh, I could be more systematic. This year I started a more systematic process for asking very specific questions um, to them all across the board, uh, all the ones that I'm connected to. So um, I could have uh, more data um, to, to work with, more, more understanding there. Um, Cause I haven't been so programmatic over time. I've, I've let it be so natural, um, that I haven't, uh, at times taken advantage of the theoretical perspectives that I know now. Um, so going into this year, that was something I really wanted to adjust. I wanted to be more connected in a systematic way and think of, you know, intriguing questions that would make them think about today, tomorrow, their future, their family's future, and how they want to invest in themselves. So I can know that stuff as a baseline. And then also, you know, dabble with that a little bit to then find out it, whether these questions are working or not. So then I could, you know, share not their answers, but the actual questions with other uh, mentor and mentee networks I'm connected to. So for sure, I can be more systematic and more programmatic with uh, the approach I take. Let's talk a little bit about military mentors. I want you to really uh, promote your your uh, organization here and and say what good you have done and what good you still have left to do. So a little bit about us. We've been around since uh, 2015, co-founded with a with a mentee of mine and also a gentleman that's a friend. We've known each other for about two decades now. Um, the motto is start a conversation, spark a transformation. The mission statement very simply is um, elevating, educating and facilitating mentoring for the military and the beyond. I can talk to you about those three different concepts, but I rather talk to you about the military and the beyond in peace because people think we're just about, you know, working with formations and people who wear the uniform. Now, while we do try to work with the vast majority of folks across the joint forces and we're connected to all of them, uh, we also try to work with civilians and industry as long as people have a particular affinity for military style leadership, military style development, or just have an affinity for helping veterans. Like we work, we try to work with colleges who got veterans transitioning to go back to school after their service, right? Um, so some of the things that we've done over time is we've created mentor networks where mentees and mentors can be connected to each other. We've also put on workshops um, that look at, you know, the art and the science of mentoring. So when I say the art and the science, I'm talking about, yeah, we tell good stories about what mentoring can look like, but at the same time, we talk about the theoretical perspectives of you know, the 40 or 50 years of research behind how mentoring can happen. Um, we've also done some consulting for um, some civilian um, companies to help them start mentor programs, to help them, you know, with their veteran retention, uh, to help because they, you know, their veterans are asking in during exit interviews, hey, why are, uh, why are you guys leaving us? Well, it's, we, I, I, I had mentors in the military. I kind of don't have them here. It's like a, you know, everybody kind of figure out your cubicle and do your, do your mission, do your stuff. Um, so we've helped them build up programs 
and giving them material, one-off material, so they could help uh, retain those individuals, but then also leverage those people's leadership. Sometimes uh, people exit the service after you know commanding troops or being in charge of a, a large bulk of folks, and then they go into some civilian job and it's like, hey, all you're in charge of is this computer in this cubicle, and and you know your purpose is to knock out these widgets and these TPS reports. To use an office space uh, <laughs> reference there. Um, so we try to help them build up their their mentoring programs. What we're going to do in the future is to continue to do that and to lash up. We want to get closer to um, any organization that uh, looks at uh, the military and says, those guys have some really good um, leadership uh, capabilities and we want to grow that in our organization. One, hey, we have veterans in our organization and, and it's kind of we where there's not a there's not a, a true match between uh, us taking uh, taking uh, advantage and fully uh, growing them to their potential. We would like for them to be uh, a part of our leadership in our organization. We want to retain that talent. We'd love to lash up with you if you want to do that. And we want to get closer to, to uh, high school JROTCs. We want to get closer to ROTCs at college campuses. Um, and we want to be deeper out there in a nonprofit space if you um, want your leaders developed um, and want to uh, have an organization that can come to you that can try to inoculate you against bad leadership in your future through mentoring. We think mentoring can be a salve for a lot of uh, an organization's woes. What's next for you? For me personally, <laughs> Um, um, still growing my family, man, you know, this whole 15 year anniversary on Thursday is looking really happy for us. So we can go out plans. and have a good time. Oh, we always do. We, uh, we, one of the things that's kept us together so long is things like date night, things like date night had, I mean, we just went on a date this weekend, but we will do another one this Thursday because it's our anniversary. So yeah, we're, we've been very good over the years of, of staying closely connected. So uh, we're going to move in a couple uh, couple weeks as well. It's time for us to move on from Tufts and uh, do the next thing. So um, we're looking forward to that, um, you know, supporting a, a, an awesome organization here coming up. Um, and then, um, you know, keeping the grow um, military mentors as much as we can and working with um, some special entities out there that, you know, uh, lashing up with some colleges as of late to bring some accreditation to a, um, we have a specific uh, developmental program called the Emissaries, um, which is a, you know, a six month program that we uh, selects about a dozen folks for. We have people apply, people get nominated for it. And keeping the grow that that's our actually our premier program right now is putting these folks through these six months uh, leader development cohort so starting up the next one of that here shortly at the end of the month is really exciting because we get such a wide caliber of folks we get army navy air force we get enlisted folks we get civilians who are in higher ed we get senior officers this next cohort is going to have a retired 06 in it um so looking forward to to building with those folks because it's so it's so wonderful to develop 
reciprocally reciprocally with them uh, as we you know kind of give them a curriculum to to adhere to over time they also get to do mentoring programs and community service-based projects that are really denning the universe we've had an emissary create a podcast we've had an emissary um, go back to their their home uh, island on the Caribbean and provide projectors and laptops and stuff for those schools. Wow. We've had other people start nonprofits that are, are looking at scholarship building in their uh, in their former high schools. We've had people, especially during COVID, uh, aggregate thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of food and give it out to their local community um, uh, through church organizations and local uh, sports affiliations and stuff. So, you know, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, we could all like go to, uh, to a housing project and like all build one project together and that be our big thing to do as a cohort all together. Or we can flip that paradigm and say, you know, you create something yourself. And now we have, you know, 10, 12 different various projects out there in the universe. So I'm looking forward to that too. Well, where can everyone find you? Um, I have a unique name, Chaveso Cook, C-H-A-V-E-S-O. If you Google me, that's me. Um, that can be a good and a bad thing, I guess. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Facebook as well. Um, I am on Twitter and Facebook, uh, Twitter and Instagram, but it's uh, more passive. I'm, uh, I don't interact much on there. So if you want to find me on LinkedIn or Facebook, I'd appreciate the connection and I would like to grow with you. We also have military mentors org is our site we also have you know uh, uh, facebook instagram twitter and uh linkedin page for militarymentors.org as well um, so you can find us all on there as well man you got quite a story that's a lot of school man you have you have done some great things uh it's amazing to hear the story uh mama jay has to be like super proud um and and likewise on your end of just a woman who didn't have to take you in that that changed your entire world it's an amazing story uh, i'm i'm so glad you came on guys if you want more of us you can find us on youtube at the dtd podcast you can find us on the facebook group at the dtd podcast and you can find me on twitter at doublespeak dj that's going to be it for the show tonight that's chevy i'm dj this has been the dtd podcast and remember you come here because the best stories are true we'll catch you on the next one guys we'll see you